Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to have Walter Moss on the show. His new book, An Age of Progress, Clashing 20th Century Global Forces, has just appeared. I've known Walter for a long time, and I know him to be a great historian and a very interesting fellow, and I should also say a very likable fellow. An Age of Progress is with a question mark. And today we'll be talking with Walter about whether it was, in fact, an age of progress. I really enjoyed talking to Walter, as I always do, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Walter. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, the uh, biblical flood is almost over here in Iowa. We're drying out. Yeah, uh, you know, we've been watching it on TV, and uh, my wife Nancy asked uh, if I thought it was affecting you folks much, and uh, so I was glad to hear that uh, it hasn't uh, impacted on you personally uh, that much in terms of damage or anything. Yeah, no, it uh, it hasn't very much, but as you said in our kind of pre-interview, it really is something historic, and uh, I, was, I can't say I was glad to live through it, but uh, it was a historic event. Yeah, I think as a historian, you tend to look at things somewhat differently in terms of even when they're not real good, you think, boy, this is significant yeah, historically. No, it really is. Well, let me just tell everybody we have Walter Moss on the show today, and it's a great privilege to have him. And today we're going to be discussing his new book, An Age of Progress, Clashing 20th Century Global Forces, which has just come out from Anthem Press. And, uh, you know, I really, really enjoyed the book. Uh, it. It, it's a kind of a model, as I say in the write-up on the blog, of of the way big history should be done, because I think you do a really terrific job of making the book accessible, but um, not, uh, to put it less than mildly, dumbing it down. It was a very stimulating book, and we'll have a lot to talk about, I'm sure. But let me do this. Let me ask you to tell uh, the listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, tell us where you grew up and where you went to school and how you became interested in history and that kind of thing, if you would. Okay. Um, I am a blue-collar, I grew up a blue-collar Catholic Cold War child, if you like, Uh, born just before uh, the beginning of uh, World War II in Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, just following recently uh, the funeral service, et cetera, about Tim Russert, uh, you know, I could identify with that in terms of that blue-collar Catholic kind of background. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I went to Catholic schools, grade school, high school, college, uh, and uh, then after a two-year stint in the Army uh, to Georgetown, another Catholic college, and my first teaching experience uh, for three years was at a Catholic college at Wheeling uh, Jesuit College. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, my experience has been a little different, I think, than Russert's was in the sense 
that uh, by the time I had reached uh, late teens, uh, college certainly, uh, I felt that the culture that I grew I grew up in uh, was somewhat restricted. Uh, my father wanted me. My father had gone through the depression. His mother was an immigrant. Uh, he emphasized uh, earning money a great deal, uh, partly as a result mm-hmm. of going through the Depression. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of these things I didn't really appreciate when I was young, but later on, when I began studying history, I began to understand my father and his point of view more. Mm-hmm. But as a child, uh, I felt uh, I want more out of life. Uh, he couldn't understand why I wanted to go to college instead of get a good job. Uh, he, he, he certainly couldn't understand why I wanted to major in English, which I majored in college. Um, and so from uh, the late teens on, I, I think I was rebelling somewhat uh, against the subculture that I grew up in. Uh, not yet against the Catholicism, but against uh, the blue-collar kind of mentality, I think, that my dad represented. Uh-huh. Uh, there was a fair amount of prejudice uh, in that point of view. Um, I think I also was influenced somewhat uh, by the beat generation of poets, etc., seeing that as kind of a counterculture to the dominant uh, consumer culture that I was growing up in. Not, not to interrupt and, you, Walter, but, yeah. I, but I, you know, I have trouble seeing you in a beret with a pair of bongos in front of you. I, I, I really do. I mean, maybe, you know, I, I'd love to see the pictures next time I'm in the FC, okay? <laughs> well, the, the rebellion wasn't great <laughs> in that case, Marshall, but uh, it, it was uh, the, the sort of feeling that, that there's got to be more to life, you know, than, than this sure. point of view. Sure. And uh, we'll talk about uh, my new book later on. But uh, you notice I deal with culture and subculture and consumer culture, mass culture, popular culture. Sure. I, I think culture is a tremendously important kind of concept. And uh, after doing research on this, when I talk to my students, I, I really make a point uh, trying to get them to think about how their culture is affecting them mm-hmm. and try to see that there's a larger world out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they want to become freer people, that they've got to realize how their culture uh, limits them in some ways or the perspective of their culture limits them some ways. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the great things at, at Xavier University in Cincinnati, where I went, uh, there was a very strong emphasis on liberal arts education. Mm-hmm. And uh, from the time I heard the first spiel about liberal arts education until the present, uh, I'm a great believer in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I understand how jobs are important to students and uh, making a good uh, living. But I insist that education should be about more than just that. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I say, I majored in English. We all had to minor in philosophy back then. Is that right? Yeah, all Jesuit schools, as far as I know, uh, this was, I went to college in the late 50s, uh, they all had to major or minor in philosophy. Wow. 
uh, it was quite amusing sometimes. One of my friends who was studying accounting, you know, he had the minor in philosophy, and he wasn't real happy about that. But, <laughs> <laughs> and it was all Thomistic philosophy, you know, based on Thomas of Aquinas. Um, but for me, it was a tremendous uh, liberating experience. And again, in my new book, I, ta- I have a chapter on freedom there. Uh-huh. And uh, it 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 meant exposure to different points of view, uh-huh. um, and I think as I look back on my career, uh, trying to understand other points of view, either from other countries, other cultures. Um, uh, when I was young, trying to understand more how older people thought as a male, trying to understand more how females think. Uh, it seems to me it's tremendously important to to overcome the limitations mm-hmm. of maybe the subculture that you grow up in. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Xavier, uh, my college experience was a very good experience. The other thing in terms of my youth, uh, because of my dad's background, I, I had to work at various jobs from a very young age, Mm -hmm. and uh, freedom also meant for me uh, finding a way of life uh, where I wouldn't have a boss I didn't like. (laughs) (laughs) And one of the great things about the academic life, as you know, is uh, you really do have a great deal of freedom. You haven't you haven't uh, met, you haven't met my department chair. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 I'm just kidding. No. Yeah, you're kidding. I, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, uh, for listeners, uh, we know that the academic life uh, is a great life in in that regard. That uh, you have department heads, but I've never really felt that I had a boss. Yeah. You know, like I did when I had. A wide variety of jobs as a teenager and as a young man, you know, trying to work my way through college and, and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, my my experience in college was a very good experience, and then partly because of financial problems, uh, I decided to uh, earn some money in the army. Mm-hmm. Uh, at Xavier, at that time, everybody had to take two years of ROTC. Really. Uh, and so, and at that time, they still had the draft. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I thought, well, you know, I'd probably be drafted uh, at some point, and so I might as well take two more years and go in as an officer, since yeah. I thought I'd probably have to go in, you know, one way or the other. Right. Uh, so after graduating from college, I went into service uh, for six months. And again, even though I never for a moment thought of making the military a career, uh, it was a good experience in the sense that I was in at the time the Berlin Wall was built, and uh, this was 1961, Mm -hmm. and they decided to send a lot of soldiers over to Europe Mm -hmm. to buttress up our forces over there, Mm -hmm. and so I got to spend six months in France. Mm And again, going back to this theme of culture and, and how culture shapes you and influences you, mm-hmm. to live six months in a foreign country, even though it was on a military base, uh, I got the chance to get out a lot on weekends, to take some uh, uh, leave and go to different countries. Mm-hmm. 
I found that a tremendously liberating experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when I was in service, uh, of course, this was the time John Kennedy became president, and uh, we were at the, as I mentioned, the building the Berlin Wall. It was really the height of the Cold War in some ways, and uh, I thought about what do I want to do when I'm finished with the military. And uh, you probably remember uh, the talk about know thy enemy sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it seemed important and significant to to learn a great deal more about the Soviet Union. Mm And uh, one of my fellow officers had gone to Georgetown as an undergraduate and said they had a good Russian area program there. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I applied, and so different than today for kids uh, looking for where they're going to go to graduate school. Georgetown was the only place I applied to, (laughs) and uh, uh, luckily uh, they accepted me and were good enough to give me a fellowship. And uh, so I spent the next five years, this was from 62 to late 67, in D.C., and I know you've lived in D.C. for uh-huh. a while, and uh, I love D.C., yeah. uh, and uh, married Nancy uh, the first uh, after my first year of graduate school, and we began to bring up our family. Mm-hmm. We had our daughter in D.C., mm-hmm. uh, Jenny, and then later on uh, two boys, Tom and Dan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when I would tell my kids later on in terms of the important decisions in their lives, I'd say the two most important are who you marry and uh, what career you choose for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I feel tremendously uh, fortunate and that somehow I stumbled into two good decisions there, <laughs> and uh, they've really made my life a pleasure. You're too, you're too modest. Yeah, well, no. Uh, I, you know, it, it really is, and uh, it's, it's too bad in some ways that we have to make, or a lot of people make these very key decisions at a very young age when yeah. maybe uh, – we're not quite as wise as we could be in terms of making these decisions. It's true. Uh, so uh, Georgetown uh, was a very good experience. Uh, uh, I got involved in the Russian Area Studies program. It took me a little longer than it did some others because uh, I only had one semester, I think, of Russian as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just the briefest introduction, so I really had to kind of start over uh, with my Russian at the Institute of Language and Linguistics mm-hmm. at Georgetown, and uh, took 22 hours there, but that was all undergraduate credit. Mm-hmm. So I had to do that while I was taking my graduate courses. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I was fortunate in some of the professors I had there. I think probably the one that had the strongest impact uh, was a Jesuit priest, Frank Fadner, who wrote a book on Pan-Slavism. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got interested in, he taught a two-semester course on Russian intellectual history. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's really the area of my special interest within the field of Russian history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also had another terrific uh, teacher there that taught European intellectual history, uh, Hisham Shirabi. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he was he was really a great teacher. He's he was a Palestinian by background, 
and an expert on the Middle East, uh, but he was also very good at uh, European intellectual history. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would have a weekly assignment like, uh, all right, for next week, read Darwin's Origin of Species. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> and I think we made valiant efforts to, to, to get as far as we could in the reading. Yeah. Uh, but he was one of these people to whom ideas were were passionately important. And you would come into that class, and you knew that whatever, who, whatever thinker you were discussing that night, that they were tremendously important to this man. Uh-huh. And it was just an exhilarating kind of an experience. Uh-huh. Uh, so when it uh, came time to decide on what kind of uh, uh, dissertation topic, uh, I chose a topic within the field of Russian intellectual history, and uh, that was the polemics between the philosopher, poet, mystic uh, Vladimir Solovyev, mm-hmm. uh, the son of the great historian, and uh, a group I called the Russophiles, mm-hmm. that were sort of latter-day Slavophiles, but but very conservative nationalists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I was fortunate, I think, in that I've seen the experience of some people who have chosen dissertation topics that were not very manageable. Uh, mine was pretty manageable because mm-hmm. I had Solovyev's uh, collected works mm-hmm. that included various uh, essays and, and longer works that he wrote, some of them uh, polemicizing with these conservative nationalists, and then uh, various articles that these conservative nationalists wrote. Mm-hmm. But it was a fairly manageable kind of topic. Mm-hmm. And I had uh, the Library of Congress uh, as a resource. Not a bad resource at all. Not a bad one at all. <laughs> and uh, by this time, of course, uh, I, we had uh, Jenny, and uh, so I had to work part-time. And I worked as a waiter for a while, and that was a hard job. But then the last year I was in D.C., uh, I worked part-time for the Defense Intelligence Agency, and that was a much better paying job, Mm -hmm. and uh, I was able to work just three days a week and work on my dissertation Mm -hmm. three Mm -hmm. days a week. Mm -hmm. So that all worked out very well. And then, of course, this was the 60s, and uh, in the 60s, I uh, became active in, in civil rights activities like a lot of people of my generation. I was inspired by Martin Luther King uh, and uh, uh, became interested in the Vietnam War, etc. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in 67, I took my first teaching job at uh, Wheeling Co- It was called Wheeling College then. Mm-hmm. I think it was the newest of the Jesuit colleges. Mm-hmm. And today it's it's changed its name to Wheeling Jesuit College. Mm -hmm. But it was a small liberal arts college, and I know you went to a small liberal arts college. Uh, And it was a good experience in the sense, by the time they graduated, I think I knew by first name most of the students (laughs) at the school. Um, And this was the late 60s, and uh, again, very involved in in civil rights activities, anti-war, the Vietnam War by this time kind of activities. And the president of the college was Al Haig's brother. Is that right? Um, (laughs) And he was fairly conservative, so it was a very interesting uh, three years that I spent in Wheeling. Uh Uh-huh. 
and uh, some of my later interests, uh, like the environment, uh, grew out of the interest in the late 60s. The first Earth Day was in the late 60s. I, I remember it well, actually. I remember the first Earth Day. I remember my grade school class. We went out and we cleaned up a creek that I used to play in. <laughs> Very clearly. Yeah. And uh, we, uh, they developed a course there, Science for Non-Science Majors, and they had a biologist, a chemist, and a physicist, and myself teach it. Wow. And uh, my job was to talk about science's impact on society and society's influence on science. Uh -huh. And so uh, in the second chapter of my new book, I deal with science and technology in the 20th century. Uh -huh. And so my interest uh, in science and how it interrelates to history kind of goes back to that. But it's also of a concern, I think, in the broader field of intellectual history. Um, you know, science is part of culture in a sense, uh, just as religion is, is part of culture in the broadest uh, definition of uh -huh. the term. Uh, but then, uh, Wheeling, uh, one of the problems there was the research facilities were not very great. Uh, in fact, they were almost non-existent except mm -hmm. the very small library at the college. Uh, Pittsburgh was more than an hour, about an hour away, but yeah. still, uh, I was looking for a place where the research facilities were better. And uh, so uh, I decided to accept a job at Eastern Michigan in mm -hmm. 1970, mm -hmm. and one of the great attractions was five miles away was the University of Michigan's library, yep. which is one of the best research libraries in the field of Russian studies uh -huh. in the country. Uh, so from 1970 to the present, uh, I've been at Eastern Michigan, and uh, again, I've been very fortunate. Uh, I've taught mainly uh, four or five different courses in Russian history, as well as 20th century civilization. When I first came, uh, like a lot of schools, we still taught uh, Western Civ, and uh, although we still teach it, it's not required like it once was. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the late 70s, we developed a course on 20th century civilizations. Mm -hmm. And we thought, uh, you know, there really isn't a good book uh, on 20th century civilizations that we were happy with. So uh, we decided to write our own. Wow. And uh, in 1983, we came out with the first edition of the 20th century uh, brief global history. Uh, it was published by Wiley uh, later on, um, and not bought Wiley out, and so it was published, uh, later editions were published by Knopf, and yeah. then McGraw-Hill bought uh -huh. Knopf out right. in terms of their college division. Yep. So uh, currently it's up to the seventh edition, and uh, it's in, been in print 25 years now. It's incredible. And uh, well, I was going to say, I was, was going to say, yeah, Walter, that, that's sort of the difference between you and me. When I am uh, dissatisfied with a book, I just get another book. I don't write one. No, I no, I don't have that kind of moxie, really. But yeah. Well, actually, I don't deserve the credit for the idea. Uh, one of my colleagues at Eastern Michigan, Dick Goff, uh, it was his idea to really start it, and he got 
uh, myself, and then our expert in the Middle East, Jan Terry, and our expert on Asian history, uh, Chua Upshur, and mm-hmm. myself. So for the first uh, six editions, it was us four. And uh, Dick, for a long time, did most of the editing. Uh, but then in recent years, uh, he's he's had some health problems, so I've taken over most mm-hmm. of the editing. And then on this last edition, uh, we brought in a, a new, uh, well, a, a younger uh, Latin American historian, Mike Schroeder. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're up to five now. Mm-hmm. But it's been a good collaborative kind of working experience, and I've learned a great deal but, about yeah. the world yeah. from my colleagues. Well, it certainly shows in this book, which is uh, remarkably capacious and certainly shows an incredible erudition. I mean, just the number of books that you must have read in order to write this book is, is sort of mind-boggling. And if we could, why don't we turn to the book now, and why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, how you came to write it? Okay. Um, well, for many, many years uh, with the, the 20th century, which now has a title, The 20th Century and Beyond, and we've dropped the brief out of there because each edition we've added a few more pages. Right. Uh, but that was designed for college freshmen, basically. And it's it's used widely in various universities for college freshmen, I think, or for basic studies kind of courses. Um, and so you, you have to cover all the nuts and bolts. Uh, and we try to do some analysis in it, uh, but it's pretty much a straight narrative kind of factual history. I wanted to uh, take a broader look at the 20th century and try to zero in on what did I think was really important. Mm -hmm. What were some of the lessons we could learn from the 20th century? And I first thought of this uh, right at the end of the 20th century. And uh, you know how uh, academic life works. Part of the stimulus for this is how can I get a research leave? And so I had to come up with a project. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I actually started before the end of the 20th century, and it took me so long because these various revisions of previous works kept coming up, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the revising of the 20th century text, and then uh, the re- revision of the two volumes, Russian history, mm-hmm. uh, that really took a great deal of time. I probably spent more time revising than was wise, but mm-hmm. uh, so it's taken me seven or eight years to finally get around to finishing this work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the idea was what was really important from the 20th century and what kind of uh, topics would I want to discuss, say, in an advanced seminar Mm -hmm. uh, dealing with the 20th century, where Mm -hmm. students already have a fundamental knowledge of the main events of the century. It's funny because that's the way the book felt. I mean, obviously it's for an educated audience that knows a little bit about history. You do a nice job of summarizing the, the events that you talk about, but there's a there's a, a kind of a pleasant assumed knowledge in the book that makes it that makes it uh, interesting for even someone like me who's a a professional historian. I, I especially like the frame of the book, and that is uh, 
um, you know, to kind of pose a global question, and you call the book an age of progress, and I should tell all the with listeners. With a question mark. With a question mark. That's exactly right. 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 And I, I found that particularly stimulating. And if we could, why don't we, um, since literally every big force in the 20th century is um, dealt with in this book, why don't we simply just start with Chapter 1, which is called A Century of Violence. What were you trying to get out there? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, one of the uh, questions I deal with in, in the last chapter is uh, how does our present view or does our present view and should our present uh, developments affect our view of history? And my answer is, uh, yes, sure, it affects our view of history, and, and it's right that it does uh, to some extent. And when I first planned the book, it was before 9-11. Mm-hmm. And after 9-11, I thought, wait a minute, I don't have a chapter on violence. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's obviously an important topic. Mm-hmm. And uh, after 9-11, we all spent some time, or at least many of us in the history department spent some time trying to give the students some context for what had happened mm-hmm. and having them understand what had happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you look at uh, history, uh, when I first started studying American history before the civil rights movement uh, of the late 50s, 60s, there was very little about African Americans or Mm -hmm. blacks. Mm -hmm. And then as the interest in the civil rights movement became more and more widespread, historians began dealing with that. Yeah. And so the first chapter, the the stimulus for that was really 9-11 mm-hmm. and trying to understand why terrorism exists and uh, why 9-11 occurred to some extent and, and why the 20th century was the most violent century we've ever had in terms of total number of deaths, for example, mm-hmm. as a result of war and terrorism. Mm-hmm. So that first chapter deals primarily with wars and, and terrorism. Then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think you do a very nice job of making the point that terrorism is really nothing new. In fact, it's one of the hallmarks of the 20th century, that you know these movements for liberation of whatever sort, and I mean that in the broadest sense, have often found themselves in the position of having to commit acts of terrorism in order to get what they want done. This is hardly yeah. a new thing. Well, you know, uh, I taught a a seminar course uh, based on the manuscript a couple of years ago, and one of the interesting things I learned is how important definitions are. And so I do have a glossary at the back of the book Mm -hmm. so that at least uh, there's a convenient way for people to know what I mean when I use a term like terrorism. Mm -hmm. And it's been one of the most contested terms. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, Mike Schroeder, my colleague who sat in, well, actually team taught the course with me, uh, he really doesn't like to use the term terrorism. Mm -hmm. He thinks uh, because it has a pejorative uh, connotation and it's used by enemies of of almost anybody you don't like uh, that's using violence, you call a terrorist, etc., but uh, it seems to me it's important to deal with the term, mm-hmm. uh, even though it is a very contested term. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, I think the book would serve very well in a course, uh, partly in an advanced course, partly because it would stimulate a great deal of discussion. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, in some of the cases, and 
and I found this uh, kind of particularly challenging. In some of the cases, these terrorists, who were doubtless terrorists, were terrorists in causes that we quite like now. Yeah. And, that, yeah. and that's, that's kind of shocking to think. But, uh, you know, I mean, particularly, I mean, we, we often forget that, uh, you know, the, the, the original, you know, I, I won't say the founders, but the, some of the original political leaders of Israel were terrorists. They were That's avowed right. terrorists without any question about it. I mean, the people that basically made uh, the most recent Irish peace were terrorists. I know I was in Ireland at the time, and people were kind of shocked by this. But, in fact, they laid down their arms. But they were terrorists, and they said they were. At well, one time, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, I, I try to make the point that I'm going to try to use the term as objectively as I can. And uh-huh. the definition I give is the non-governmental use of violence or threat of its use for political purposes, yeah. but on a lesser scale than a revolution or warfare, mm-hmm. whether guerrilla or conventional civil war, war between nations. Yeah. And I, I make the point, look, we use terms like war, we use terms like revolution, and we don't necessarily say that all wars are bad unless we're pacifist, uh, or we don't say all revolutions are bad. We judge them based on the context. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to use terrorism in that sense and say uh, it's going to be up to the individual to decide whether it's ever justified or it's never justified. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I try to deal with in the chapter is to point out that I think many people do not think systematically in terms of the use of violence, mm-hmm. and that quite often people in different countries tend to justify the violence we use. Mm-hmm. And I give the example that very few Americans uh, are liable to question the the bombing of German cities, Mm -hmm. say, for example, in World War II. Mm -hmm. uh, Generally, at the time, anyway, there was pretty broad spread uh, agreement in terms of bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yet uh, we'll criticize or say terrorism is never justified. Right. And so what I try to say to the students is what criteria are you using for when Mm -hmm. violence is justified or not? Mm -hmm. And sometimes somebody will say, well, terrorism isn't justified because innocent civilians are killed. Well, how about the bombing of major cities, you know, during World War II? So obviously there has to be more to it than that. Yeah, no, obviously. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that in in contemporary political discourse that those nuances are never brought out. I, I, you know, I... I, I don't exactly know why it is, but uh, but the degree of, of hypocrisy, I guess I would just put it baldly like that, that one finds, especially among pundits, is is, is truly remarkable. You know. Well, you know, don't you think it's partly too the the sound bite uh, kind of uh, problem that that comes up with a good deal of television, uh, yeah. the nuanced kind of discussions. No are very difficult. Uh, you know, you do have some. I think the Jim Lehrer uh, report, for example, Yeah. Uh, you'll have some nuanced kind of discussions. Yeah, no, uh, I, I think it's definitely the case the soundbite is the enemy of thought. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think but you're right. Why don't we, um, yeah, I mean, one thing I, I, I thought that was, you know, that, that I think has to be talked about if we're discussing violence in the 20th century is the two world wars, obviously, because they were like really nothing we'd ever seen before in terms of the amount of destruction and death that they entailed. Could you talk a little bit about those? Well, 
yeah. Um, in terms of, of World War One, uh, I think when we look back upon it, uh, the, there is not the consensus uh, that there tends to be in regard to uh, World War II uh, in, in terms of responsibility, in terms of was it necessary, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, but, uh, the, and, and therefore, in some ways, it's even though the loss of life was not as great as in World War II, uh, nevertheless, it seems almost more tragic because it seemed not as necessary. World War II, mm-hmm. in terms of fighting against the Nazi menace, you know, seems... Uh, more justified, although I see Pat Buchanan's out with a new book yep. in which he's suggesting that uh, the United States should not have become involved in World yeah. War II. That's what he says. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, when, you, when you look at the trench warfare in World War I and you look at the tremendous loss of life I think over a period of three years, uh, the Western Front didn't move more than about 10 miles. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the the tactics uh, really favored the defense up until about 1918. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you had these uh, people getting out of trenches, attacking the enemy's trenches, and just being mowed down. Yeah. You know, it, it, it seems like senseless slaughter to mm-hmm. so many people mm-hmm. and left a tremendous psychological impact. Now, uh, you know, I'm very, I'm very fond of trying to get the point over to my students that uh, y- y- you have to remember that uh, w- y- it isn't quite accurate to say the United States won World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, in the Soviet Union they lost twice as many people in one city, uh, yeah. Leningrad, as all of our losses in World War II. Yeah. And the estimate is over 50 times the number of deaths in the Soviet Union as in the United States mm-hmm. uh, in terms of military casualties in World mm-hmm. War II. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we didn't feel the impact of World War One as much as Europe because we were only in for a year, mm-hmm. you know, whereas uh, the major European countries were in for four years. Uh, but, yeah, the loss of life, tremendous. In World War Two, you had uh, maybe three times the number of losses or more, and this was largely due, I think, to... Uh, the saturation bombing that occurred. Mm-hmm. When you talk about this concept of progress, if you talk about technological progress in military terms, it means a capacity to kill more people, yep. among other things. Yeah, no, that's right. And by World War II, we had a much greater capacity to kill, uh, you know, I mean, the, the various countries of the world did. And uh, the, the distinction between killing civilians and killing military also began to be blurred. Yeah. And so you had much more targeting of, of uh, civilian populations. I mean, the initial targets might not be civilian populations, but if you're bombing uh, factories in cities, you're going to have large numbers of civilian population died. Yeah, no, yeah. no, you're right. No, it's interesting that kind of moral slippage that we saw go on in the 20th century. I, I'm, I'm always 
I'm always given pause by the fact that, you know, we, we sort of started the war thinking that maybe we ought not bomb cities, but, but very quickly into it that all sides had agreed that it was basically all right to carpet bomb each other's cities. And, and that, you know, that this was just spoken about openly is kind of the right thing to do. I, it was, it was, it was a, I think, a remarkable kind of turn of events. And, and really, it, it's, sort, it's sort of shocking in a way that, that it happened so quickly, you know, that people that were ordinarily civilized found reasons to um, commit what, what really was a kind of a, a mass slaughter. I won't call it murder, but at least a mass slaughter. So why don't we go on to Chapter 2, which is about science, technology, and, and change. It seems like you know, that's, that's one of the most... Even somebody in, you know, of, of, uh, of my generation... I mean, I live in a different world than I did when I was growing up. I, it's, it's, things are different now. People, you know, people always have things plugged in their ears today. I don't know. That wasn't, wasn't the case when I was growing up. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, well, being slightly older than you are, uh, I've witnessed even more. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and uh, when when I'm considering this larger question of progress, uh, there's no doubt there's been tremendous scientific and technological progress in the 20th century. And I think in one of the areas that it's been most beneficial has been in uh, in, in the field of health care. Mm-hmm. And uh, life expectancy has greatly expanded uh, around the world during mm-hmm. the 20th century as a result of a lot of these scientific technological developments. Yeah. Uh, other uh, major areas in terms of scientific and technological developments, uh, I have a uh, section there on electricity, and when you just stop to think of all the tremendous advances as a result of electricity yeah, no, and where true. we would be if we didn't have electricity, it's mm-hmm. mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and very important, I think, is all of the scientific technological changes in regard to media. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this really impacts when we start talking about different kinds of culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with a young uh, son now, you're going to have to face <laughs> the decision as he gets older in terms of how much television and what kind of television, uh, you know. uh, And uh, so when you read some of these statistics in terms of how much people watch television, uh, it's it's really mind-boggling. And in a later chapter on the environment, I deal mostly with the physical environment, pollution, and those sort of things. But I also have a subsection dealing with changes in the mental environment Uh in the 20th century. And uh, increasingly, we're living in a world of virtual reality. Uh, If you consider films and and television Mm -hmm. and uh, a good part of your computer, you know, a virtual kind of reality as compared to an immediate uh, physical hands-on reality, uh, all of that is partly, you know, is as a result of uh, science and technolo- technological changes. Mm-hmm. And a big theme, I think, and I deal with this in the last chapter, uh, trying to consider the overall progress of the century, is how capable are we of keeping up with the changes in science and technology? Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that's a central question coming out of the 20th century, because as science and technology changes our world more and more rapidly, 
are we developing the wisdom to cope with it in a way that is going to be beneficial mm-hmm. and continue uh, and, and lead to progress in terms of uh, improving life for humankind? Mm-hmm. Or uh, is it going to have negative kinds of an effects? Mm-hmm. And when you consider where we are now as compared to where we started the 20th century, we can now blow up the world mm-hmm. where we couldn't in the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, I think the planet is in worse shape than it was at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And those are a result of scientific technological development mm-hmm. as well as how we've dealt with them. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's a tremendously important area. Oh, it is. I, I, I thought you did a nice job of pointing out um, how these putative moments of technological progress have many unintended and unfortunate consequences. The one that I'm, I'm particularly reminded of is the fact that the birth rate remains the same and then the death rate declines precipitously, so you have a tremendous increase in population and you can keep people alive longer, so the number of sort of the number of people on Earth that are alive increases very quickly, but you don't really have the capacity, that is in terms of economic resources, in order to sustain that population. I mean, I think this is, yeah, this well, is, now actually, you know, the, the, the birth rate has declined. I mean, if you look at overall, uh, compared in 1900 to the birth rate today, there has been a uh-huh. decline, but the death the the death rate decline has been even greater. Uh-huh. So therefore, you know, the tremendous increase in population. Yeah, I think that's one of the most astounding things. I can't remember the exact statistics, but there were some, you know, a billion people on Earth in 1900, and how many are there now? Six billion? Well, yeah. In, in 1810, we had uh, one billion people, uh-huh. and today we have over six billion. Yeah, no, that's... Uh... And when you look at the environmental problems and resource problems, uh, the starting point is really if you've got six times as many people, uh, everything else being equal, you're going to have to have six times yep. the resources. That's right. But, of course, everything isn't equal, and so we need even more resources, partly because of the tremendous increase in consumer goods. Yeah, no, that's, exa- uh, that's exactly right. No, I agree. So then the question becomes, uh, how do you organize people in such a way that they can actually sustain themselves given the finite resources of the earth. And you have a nice chapter about that, capitalism, socialism, and communism, which were three different ways people tried to organize humans in order to do this thing. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there seemed to be a consensus, and I would agree with it, and I think you would probably, that the communist experiment uh, failed. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and what we have, and I would also say that uh, laissez-faire capitalism uh, has been modified so that that kind of capitalism no longer exists. Uh-huh. And uh, what we have today, I think, is a mixed economy uh, throughout most of the world, mm-hmm. uh, with the exception of, well, even in China, you have a communist government, but you have an economy that is nothing like the old planned communist kind of economy, Mm -hmm. or at least it's quite different, and Mm -hmm. there are various capitalist elements in there now, too. Mm -hmm. So we have kind of a mixed economy, and in the chapter I try to point out that the early, the sort of of turn-of-the-century laissez-faire capitalism 
but a number of people felt that it it wasn't quite adequate, uh, and so you had the progressive movement that tried to place some restrictions on laissez-faire capitalism. Mm -hmm. And then the Great Depression led to the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt and uh, more and more government regulation in terms of uh, laissez-faire kind mm -hmm. of capitalism. Um, and so uh, I think by the end of the 20th century, uh, we've arrived at this kind of mixed economy of, 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 of capitalism, but uh, various kinds of government restrictions, uh, more so than was true at the beginning of the century, mm -hmm. and more government uh, protections, uh, development of what is sometimes referred to as a welfare state, mm -hmm. whereas you have Social Security, you have disability insurance, you know, you have all of the Medicare, you have all of these kinds of things now. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think as you pick up from the chapter, uh, I see some very positive things about the capitalist experience, but also some rather negative things. Mm -hmm. And uh, I deal with that more in the chapter on culture, where I talk about social criticism. Uh, mm -hmm. And early, when, when Matthew Arnold, the, the Englishman in the late 19th century, started talking about culture, he saw it as kind of an antidote to laissez-faire capitalism, mm -hmm. as a kind of different approach or a higher approach trying to deal with some of the problems that he thought that uh, laissez-faire capitalism introduced. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you read Charles Dickens and, or uh, you read some of the pages of Das Kapital about children six working yeah, in a sure. factory 12 hours a day, uh, you get an idea that uh, the, the profit motive alone is not enough in society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, clearly not. I, I, I thought that one of the most interesting parts of the book uh, concerned, and I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, but the changing definition of freedom and liberty, what exactly that means. I mean, we can all agree on some level that people should be free, but we can't all agree on what that means. And it seems to me the definition of that has been at the crux of many, many political fights in the 20th century. I think you're exactly right, Marshall. And, and uh, connected with, with capitalism, there's this kind of basic difference, and we'll see it in the present uh, presidential campaign. Yeah, I think that's right. The, the, the idea, uh, I, I think, uh, that a number of people have come up with, including Franklin Roosevelt, when he talked about his four freedoms, he said one of the four freedoms is freedom from want. Uh -huh. And uh, many conservatives would say that the government should not, uh, when they talk about freedom, they're mainly concerned with freedom from government. Yeah. Whereas somebody like Franklin Roosevelt uh, believes that people are not really free if they're so impoverished that they can't, uh, take advantage of other kinds of freedoms that they might have. Yeah. Uh, I was listening on the radio today when I was in the car, and they were having a discussion, and somebody was making the point uh, that it was one thing to obtain the freedom in the civil rights movement to be able to go into various uh, big hotels and not be discriminated against. It was another thing to be able to afford to go <laughs> yeah, into it. That's quite a difference. And 
so I think a good deal of the differences in terms of conservatives and liberals in this country in regard to freedom is uh, what are you going to emphasize most? Mm -hmm. Are you going to emphasize freedom from government and keep government small and not have them putting their fingers here and there like Margaret Thatcher says they are and they shouldn't be or Ronald Reagan? Or uh, are you going to emphasize more... uh, giving people more opportunities, making them freer that way mm-hmm. by giving them a hand from the government. Yeah, it's the old paradox of freedom and equality, because if you make people free, they won't be equal, and if you make them equal, they won't be free. I mean, right, yeah, except yeah. some are saying also that uh, that uh, in, in, that that equality, when you're talking about equality, if you're talking about leveling the playing field in terms of equality, some would say that freedom is also involved in that leveling the playing field because people aren't free if there are great disparities or they aren't as free. Sure. Well, one of the reasons they became unfree had to do with imperialism. Um, And you have a nice chapter on imperialism, nationalism, and globalization. But it strikes me one of the leitmotifs of the 20th century is, in fact, precisely um, decolonialization. That, that actually the 20th century has seen, uh, save the Nazis and the Japanese and to some extent the Chinese, that the 20th century was a, a, a rejection of imperialism. What would you say to that? Well, I would agree with you. I, I think uh, and that chapter that you talk about, Chapter 4, deals with imperialism and nationalism. And nationalism in a lot of places uh, was a reaction against imperialism. Uh, if you think in terms of, say, uh, in India, sure. uh, the Indian nationalist movement was a reaction against British imperialism. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, when the United Nations was formed after World War, at the end of World War II, you had less than 50 independent countries in the world. Mm-hmm. And that was largely as a result of imperialism. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, at the end of the 20th century, you had approximately 200 independent countries, mm-hmm. and that's largely as a result of decolonization. Mm-hmm. And so I would say the first half of the century was an age of imperialism. The second half of the century has been more an age of decolonization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see just what you mean. So, But I don't see any evidence that... Uh... I mean, it seems to me in the struggle between imperialism and nationalism, nationalism won hands down. Well, I think it did. And uh, for a long time, uh, we've dealt in our 20th century uh, texts with the collapse of the Soviet Union as sort of the collapse of the last big empire. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, now, the Soviet Union was an empire in a different sense than some of the uh, Western colonial empires. But it had a lot of the characteristics of an empire also. Um, And uh, so you can say with the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, not only the disintegration of the Soviet Union, but the collapse of their kind of like imperialistic control over Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, et cetera, Uh that that's the last empire. Uh Now, you know, some people talk about American imperialism today and, but that's why, again, I think you have to define what you mean, yep. uh, because a term like imperialism is like a term like fascism. Mm-hmm. You can use it in all kinds of ways, mm-hmm. and if you don't define what you're talking about, it gets very sloppy. Yeah, so often it's the case when um, 
people talk about American imperialism. I think to myself, it, it may be imperialism, but it's not very imperialistic. <laughs> I, I don't know how I got to that thought, but it's, it's yeah, it's, it may be imperialism, well, it but it doesn't do two different, two different yeah, definitions. Yeah. yeah, no, it's quite true. So. Um, uh, I, th I think uh, you know w one of the things we can also say about the, the 20th century is that, uh, remarkably enough, it, it's a century of of the expansion of freedom, and that that is the that's the fifth chapter in the book. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, uh, I think when when you look at the larger question of has there been progress in the 20th century, uh, I think there has been progress in the sense that people are freer today than they were at the beginning of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, if we look at the beginning of the 20th century, most of the world was controlled by the big empires, mm -hmm. the British Empire, the French Empire, etc. Uh, in Africa, as late as the beginning of World War II, you only had two independent countries. Mm -hmm. Today, you've got about 50. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nelson Mandela's uh, autobiography, A Long Walk to Freedom, kind mm -hmm. of uh, yeah, summarizes, in a sense, the longing that many people in Africa had to be free from colonial control. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at Africa, if you look at India, uh, you know, these countries have become freer, at least from foreign control. And so that's a big step in terms of greater freedom. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, then uh, if you take uh, women, women could not vote in any of the major countries of the world in 1900. Mm -hmm. They've become freer in mm -hmm. the sense that they have the franchise now, and it means something in most countries of the world, mm -hmm. at least uh, the more developed countries of the world, mm -hmm. and increasingly around the world. Um, if if I think of the world when I was growing up as compared to the world today, uh, I look at the discrimination against uh, gays, for example, mm -hmm. when I was young. Mm -hmm. uh, there's much more freedom in regard to that today. Mm -hmm. um, I, and so th there's still a lot of uh, racism and, and ethnic, uh, hatred in the world. You know, we saw that in the 1990s and in uh, Rwanda and Burundi uh, with a war there going on between the Hutus and the Tutsis. Mm -hmm. We saw it in Bosnia. You know, uh, there's still ethnic hatreds in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but, I, but I think uh, there is more tolerance and more freedom in, in many ways. Mm -hmm. But you've reminded me actually of an interesting statistic that I came upon a couple of years ago, um, and that is, uh, and I don't know how much to credit it or not, but there are more slaves alive today than passed over the Atlantic in the two centuries of American slavery. There are more slaves alive today than there were. Now, yeah. yeah, where are most of these slaves? Well, most of them are in Asia. Most of them are in Asia and Africa. Okay. Yeah. A lot of them are in India as well. But, and I mean, the I point, I guess the, the more general point I'm trying to make is is that while it's true that we're generally freer in political and economic terms, there's an awful lot of really grinding poverty out there. Oh, there's no doubt about that, Marshall. And, you know, again, I think in terms of slaves, it gets back to a definition. Yeah. It, it partly depends upon how you define slavery. And, you know, in the case of uh, Russia before Peter the Great, uh, there was slavery. Yep. 
but it was quite different than American slavery, well, and yeah. that you know it wasn't the racial ethnic kind of thing nope. as it was in the mm-hmm. United States. And so, uh, if if people are if they're defining slavery as people very being very poor, being tied to the land, et yeah. cetera. Uh, you know, then maybe you could say there were more slaves, you know. No, granted, granted, it's slippery, and I remember dealing with just this question when I was doing this research. But it seems, yeah, yeah, and and I, I, you know, obviously I don't want to spend any time talking about it. But, I mean, it is interesting. Slavery is alive and well today um, by almost any definition. But I guess I'd like to just go back to this point about, and you do a very good job of pointing this out, that, that, that really for for billions of people in the world live in a kind of grinding poverty today. Oh, yeah. And I have a section in the book, in the environment chapter, on slums. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's it, it's a terrible problem, and it's it's one that, uh, you know, a lot of American kids that are born in suburbs or come from very fairly nice neighborhoods, uh, they just don't have much appreciation no, for how that affects how people think. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about the environment here? Um uh, this is a very topical thing. Uh, uh, what is your impression of the, the state of the environment today as compared to uh, 1900? Well, I, I, I think I'm, I make the fairly bold or flat statement in the last chapter that the Earth is in worse condition today. Um, I, I basically agree with the perspective of those who won the Nobel uh, Prize last year, uh, Al Gore and the group of scientists, um, that, uh, you know, every little thing they say uh, might not be uh, 100%, but I think they're in the ballpark in terms of especially the significance in regard to global warming. Yeah, no. And uh, so I think we do have to make some drastic changes. Uh, I think uh, partly as a result of of the work that Gore has done, that uh, there's considerable more appreciation for it. Uh, You know, in, in the first edition of our 20th century text that came out in 1983, we mentioned global warming. Mm. And uh, so it's been a problem that's been around for over two decades. And, uh, you know, we weren't scientists. Uh, I mean, scientists knew about the problem, but it had come down to educated laymen enough, uh, people like ourselves, that we were aware global warming yeah. was a problem back then. Mm-hmm. But, you know, from uh, just observing what's going on in the press, et cetera, it hasn't received a great deal of attention until recently. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it's received a great deal of attention recently, I think, is hopeful. No, I remember when I was... Um when I was working at The Atlantic, and uh, we were having some sort of editorial meeting about uh, whether to publish this or that uh, study about global warming, and a study that we had seen uh, denied somehow that it existed. And I, and I just remember thinking to myself, let's see, evidence that it's getting warmer. How about the weather? <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> yeah, why don't we just take that, you know, because it's getting warmer. There's just no question about it. It's getting warmer, you know. But it, the, the capacity of people to deny this fact for what it, for whatever reason, you know, however it's caused, I don't know, but it's definitely getting warmer. I don't think there's any question about that. But I also think that, you know, uh m- most Americans don't really have any idea how um how completely 
uh, obliterated many landscapes in the world are, and I'm thinking specifically about some areas of the Soviet Union, which were just laid waste by communism or by industrialization or whatever it happens to be. Because, you know, we tend to clean these things up reasonably quickly. Uh, over there, they don't give a thought to it. You know, at least they didn't until recently. Well, you make a good point, and, uh, you know, I, I think a good deal of the environmental damage you can attribute to uh, capitalist countries, but we know of the tremendous uh, environmental damage in terms of communism also. Yeah. And uh, as you say, in some ways, uh, even worse. And uh, if you look at the most polluted cities in the world today, uh, the highest number is in China. Yeah, no, it's in And uh, so the communists have a very sorry record. And I think it's partly because uh, you you don't have you didn't have the opportunity for the Rachel Carlsons and and uh, you know the people that were going to call attention <laughs> to environmental problems in the Soviet Union. It's funny because I was uh, I was talking to my wife yesterday about you know problems with the environment and problems with energy, and I just thought to myself, you know, if we'd only listen to Jimmy Carter. Everybody, everybody thought he was a fool, but, you know, if we just listened to Jimmy Carter, we wouldn't be in this fix today. Um, I want to take our, our remaining time to talk a little bit about the last few chapters of the book, and we'll just combine them. And they, okay. they concern, um, you know, culture and uh, social criticism, values, and virtues. And I guess I just want to ask you is, do, we, do you think we live in a more virtuous culture than we did in 1900? How would you assess that? Well... Uh, as you know, one of the things I try to do in the book is present different points of view. Uh -huh. um, and I think in keeping with the idea that the tolerance is very important, I think it's important to consider these different points of view. So I, I try to give the, the conservative case or, you know, on the one hand, but on the other hand, you take somebody like Gertrude Himmelfarb, mm -hmm. uh, who is a conservative historian and a member of a prominent conservative uh, family, she has this work called the De-Moralization of Society. Mm -hmm. And she's arguing that there's been moral decline mm -hmm. in the late 20th century. Mm -hmm. And uh, a number of conservatives and some people on the left uh, agree that there's been some moral decline. Uh, I think when you assess the overall progress of the 20th century, it's easy to say there has been scientific and technological progress. It's pretty easy to say that there has been progress in regard to freedom. I think it, it's much more iffy when you get into moral progress, mm -hmm. how much or if there has been some. I think in some areas we've seen advancements in terms of moral progress. I, I tend to think uh, there's a little we're a little more cosmopolitan, a little more appreciative of foreign uh, cultures, et cetera, than maybe back in 1900. I don't mm -hmm. think the world is quite as nationalistic uh, maybe as it was in 1900. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, now when we if if we bomb like we did in Iraq, uh, governments try to assure the public that we're trying to limit collateral damage. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so, so I, I think there have been some gains. Uh, I think globalization in the sense that we're becoming more aware of what goes on in other parts of the world, I, I think that is good. Mm -hmm. 
where I do have some real concerns is the point that we talked about before in terms of uh, the tremendous impact of the media. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my three kids are grown now, but as you're raising your child, you know, you, you have to ask yourself, uh, to what extent do you want the values that they see coming across them on television? Mm-hmm. To what extent do you want them following their values? Mm-hmm. And you'll discover when your son becomes a teenager that pure influences are very strong. Uh, the culture and subculture mm-hmm. he's operating in are very strong. And uh, there's only so much you can do about that. I'm not going to let him out of the house, Walter. That's, that's no TV, not leaving the house. No, I don't. Yeah, you know, for just... example, with my daughter, I asked the question as I looked at various television shows, do, do I want her uh, watching a comedy where a young girl meets a guy in a bar and uh, 20 minutes later they're in bed together? Yeah. You know, do I want her picking up uh, the vibes that, oh, these are attractive people, they're Mm -hmm. neat people, they're funny people, they do it. Yeah. You know, and uh, it gets back to this question, do we have the wisdom, are we developing, are we educating people to be wise enough to deal intelligently with the rapid changes coming about as a result of science and technology. Yeah. No, I notice what you mean, and I've been kind of grappling. I'm writing a book now about media. And yeah, I've that's been, right. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about these issues, and I, and I can't really tell you in all honesty that I'm very optimistic about our ability to prevent anybody from watching or hearing anything that they want to hear. I mean, if you just take – this is something I was – thinking about today, the First Amendment. The First Amendment as it is interpreted today by most people would be completely unrecognizable to the Founding Fathers because it includes everything. There's really nothing you can say or do or produce or anything like that that is forbidden by the First Amendment now. Anything can be depicted. And that that is, uh, there's just something... You know, you just kind of—it's one of those moments where you just kind of have to ask yourself, like, how exactly did we get here? You know, when we're defending people's rights to look at kitty porn, or I don't know what it is. I, you know, it's—you know—it's very—it's a very strange place to be. And uh, and I'm no, I can't say that I'm terribly optimistic about it. But I well, I, and as a parent, uh, you know, now uh, these kinds of questions really hit you hard uh, because. You know, you have such a terrible responsibility or such an awesome responsibility in terms of uh, trying to bring your child up with the proper values, et cetera. That's why I have a good wife. (laughs) I don't know. It certainly helps. Yeah, I'll tell you what. (laughs) Well, Walter, we've uh, taken up really a lot of your time today, and I've really enjoyed our our conversation. Let me ask you a final question. It's our traditional question here on New Books in History. Um, What are you working on now? Well, in the final chapter of the Age of Progress, Marshall, and and, in the interview we've had so far, I've talked about do we have the wisdom to do this or the wisdom to do that. And uh, what I'm working on now is uh, it might eventually be two or three books if I live long enough. And uh, I want to 
take a look at wisdom in the 20th century, to what extent uh, we have been wise in a political sense, in an economic sense, in an environmental sense, Mm -hmm. and then also try to identify some of the people in the 20th century that I think have been among the wisest uh, people. And uh, in the 70s, I had a two-year grant uh, directing a project on uh, gerontology and the humanities. Mm -hmm. And uh, I met some very wise, older people that I respect a great deal. And uh, I've always kind of been interested in that question of of wisdom and uh, to what extent do we possess it, how do we develop it, Uh, is it something just with the old or can it be with young people too? So I've I've started research in that whole area. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like a fantastic project, and and when you're done, we'll interview you for the first book, and then the second book, and then the third book, and you'll become a you'll become we'll, we'll have you every five years. That's about yeah, right, right. right. As I say, if I live long enough, yeah, that'll be great. Well, Walter Moss, I want to thank you very much for um, being on the show. It's a real privilege for me to get to talk to you, and it's always fun. And I would highly recommend people go out and buy the book. It's called An Age of Progress. Um, and it's just come out from Anthem Press. And again, Walter, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. Right, it's always so. a pleasure All to right. talk to you. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Walter Moss about his new book, An Age of Progress, Clashing 20th Century Global Forces. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Talk to you next week. Thank you.